0: See this
1: coming Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm bringing you back an old friend, not a relative. Our names would make you think that we're relatives, but we're not. We're just good old friends. Professor Ben Park, can you say hello?
0: Glad to be here, Lindsay.
1: Ben, have things changed since we've last talked? Are we brother and sister yet, like everyone thinks
0: <laughs> Not as far as I know. But with my extended family, I can never be too sure.
1: I'm sure we're related somewhere down the Mormon line, but thanks again for coming on. You have written a new fantastic book that it's actually making the rounds. I've heard a lot of people, like people have come to me and say, hey, have you heard of this book? But yeah, I've heard of this book. You've written about Nauvoo. Do you want to tell us? a little bit about you and then this book and how that got started. And then we'll get into, you've got a lot of good, juicy stuff that we can talk about.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, Kingdom of Nauvoo was a was a book I, I always wanted to write, but never thought that I'd be able to do it so soon. I'm a historian of early America, and my first book deals with early American politics and national identity and whatnot. But I always maintain an interest in Mormonism because that's what I was raised in. But it wasn't until the LDS Church released in 2016 the Council of 50 records, these documents that had long been sequestered and had legendary status in the LDS tradition of being scandalous and salacious and treasonous. And they were finally released in 2016, much to everyone's excitement. And when I read those documents, I was just struck by what a potent archival artifact they were and that they told a much larger story. And so I decided now was my chance to bring my expertise of early American religion politics and talk about the Mormon story. And So I wrote about Kingdom of Nauvoo, which in some ways is kind of the, the cultural or the historical lead up and cultural context for the Council of 50, as well as a general overview of the political and domestic reforms that were initiated during the Nauvoo era of the church.
1: Yeah, so when I found out you were doing this, I was intrigued because I thought, well, what what else is there to say about Nauvoo? It feels like Nauvoo is so covered, right? Did you feel intimidated by that idea or
0: did you approach it differently and think, yeah, there's still a lot more of the story to tell? Yeah, there's definitely a mountain of scholarship that's written, not just on Mormonism, but on Nauvoo in particular. And I'm definitely well familiar with a lot of great works on Nauvoo, but I felt my book was going to be different in a couple of ways. One, focusing on the political context of Nauvoo has mostly been overlooked by historians of the past and not just teasing out how Mormons practice politics, but how that related to the broader culture. And second, trying to tell the Nauvoo story in a way that was relevant to people, not just within the Mormon traditions, but outside the Mormon traditions, making Nauvoo an American story that's interesting to those who otherwise might not be interested in Mormonism. In fact, one thing that struck me was that this is the, mine was the first book written on Nauvoo, for a general audience in 50 years. So I thought that that was a a hole that needed to fill. And and I hope my book uh, made at least some way toward that effort.
1: One of the things that I appreciate about it, and I think will leave an impact, and I actually think is absolutely accurate is, like you said, the impact on the American frontier that Mormons had. I think that Growing up in Utah for myself, we learn Utah history, so it is very Mormon centric. But I'm surprised to know that the rest of the country doesn't get a history like that, right? They don't they don't get the importance of, of the Mormon impact on the United States. But I actually think that it's pretty it's a pretty big impact. I would have thought Brigham Young right? He is the one that changes the American West, but you start in Nauvoo. And I just think that that's so interesting. So before we get into the polygamy stuff, why don't you talk about some of the broader impacts? I don't want to spoil it too much because I want people to buy the book, but why why yeah. does Nauvoo affect the American West?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, first and foremost, the concept of democracy is at the center of the story that we live in 2020 in a time where Democracy is taken for granted that no matter how divided our political culture is, we generally take for for granted that we share democracy as the best political principle. But back in 1840s, democracy was still an experiment. It was only just a few generations old. And so when the Mormons came to believe that the democratic system had failed them, And therefore, they initiate their own types of reforms. And then when those who were threatened by Mormonism, like those who lived in Warsaw and other neighboring communities, also decided that the democratic system was not strong enough to deal with the Mormon threat, so they had to take care of it themselves, that was, I argued, an example of how fragile democracies and how fragile the political system was in early America, so that to chip away at this exceptionalist narrative we have of American political triumph, I think we forget these stories like Nauvoo that remind us that democracy was a hard-earned concept and had uh, many dark episodes as well as its victories.
1: Yeah, that's such an eloquent way of putting it. I, th- I think one of the, one of the things that was interesting for me reading your book is you connect Americanism. You call it the Great American Experiment. You talk a lot about manifest destiny and how this impacts Mormon psyche, but I think it still impacts Mormon thinking and philosophy today. So can you talk about the role of the Mormon mindset and how not only that affected America and the colonization of America, but just Mormonism
0: in general, since my audience is a Mormon audience as well. Right. Well, I mean, since your audience is probably well familiar with Pioneer Day celebrations and Fourth of July celebrations, they probably assume that Mormon devotion and American patriotism are tethered together, that the Mormon mind means to be a patriot, which, of course, is a very American-centric view that most Mormons living in America has. But what the new story tells us is that the story of Mormonism's attachment to patriotic ideals and national institutions and just the American nation in general have always been much more complicated and contested. And in the Nauvoo instance, they came to believe that the American system had failed and that democracy was a lost cause and the only way to uh, find redemption is outside existing structures. And so when they marched out of Nauvoo in 1846, they were leaving America as a corrupt enterprise. Um, and it was time for them to establish something new. So I think this shows that the, the Mormon conception of politics and patriotism, as it's it's a much more dynamic and contested notion than we typically assume. So I want to talk about
1: how that thinking filters into the idea of polygamy, because when I was reading, I think I had read an article. Was it the Wall Street Journal? Did they do an, an yeah? So they they said that you were too careful about talking about polygamy. <laughs> do you remember that? Um, I do.
0: I'm. I, of, of all the critiques, the one I'm most uh, comfortable with is being too careful a historian.
1: <laughs> so you, as a as a Mormon historian and as an American historian, are used to grappling with complicated things. Of course, this podcast has explored the concept and complications of polygamy. So do you think that you and I are just more comfortable with the idea and outsiders when they hear, wait, Joseph Smith married how many women and they were young and some were married? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think there's a shock value with much of the Mormon polygamy story that it can jolt a lot of readers unfamiliar with it. And I think and to a to a reasonable degree, I mean, this is not a invalid critique that anyone dealing with Joseph Smith and polygamy is walking into a minefield and for some readers, doing anything short of calling him a sexual predator is just not going to cut it. Um and I I can I can see that view and I can sympathize with that view. As a historian, I try to contextualize what went on. I'm not naive enough to think that I can write something without bias, without the baggage that comes with my own background. But I also think my job as a historian is to reproduce ideas that led to the practice, how the practice was operated, how uh, people, including women, received it. And then if people want to connect the dots beyond that, uh, I, I think that's fair game.
1: Okay, so, well, let's get into it. So we know that about 200 men, 700 women are practicing secret polygamy in Nauvoo. Are those your numbers?
0: Those were the numbers that came from George Smith's Nauvoo polygamy book.
1: So we have a system of 200 men, 700 women. And, and I want to point this out. I actually am glad that you highlight and talk about this because I've been dealing with on this podcast that there's a huge and growing strain of people who believe that Joseph Smith didn't practice polygamy. To be able to contend with that, you have to contend with why Joseph didn't but 200 men around him, 200 of his closest right. associates, and all of his friends were. Can we talk about that? Because those numbers are pretty big. I want to talk about that. And then I want to talk about women's authority. But how do you hide the secret of 200 dudes practicing polygamy?
0: Yeah, I think to a degree that number can be a bit misleading for the whole picture just because a vast majority of those numbers took place in the last few months in Nauvoo, right? When the Nauvoo Temple is finished and they're preparing to leave West, and that's when polygamy becomes an open secret in Nauvoo. And so to answer the question, how do you hide that many numbers? You don't. And it started becoming well-known in the last few months in Nauvoo as a result. But before Joseph Smith's death, there were a couple dozen men and a few dozen women involved in the practice. It wasn't a tiny. And I think what you get when you look at the documents. And I will agree with you that being flummoxed with this growing idea that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy, I get emails every few days from people who read my book or encounter my work and say that I'm jumping on the fashionable train of just accepting the fact that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy. And it blows me away because I argue that to say that Joseph Smith did not practice polygamy Um, does not just require an ignorance of the documents of the period, but a willful ignorance of the documents of the period. Because it's not just a matter of, was DNC 132 a contemporary source later corrupted by Brigham Young and others? We have lots of other documents, most importantly, documents from women and voices from women. And to claim that there was not polygamy going on in Nauvoo is to And silence a lot of people who had first-hand accounts and not just reminiscences, but from the time itself. And so, I think one of the the reasons for it is because the textual record of Nauvoo is so complicated—not absent, but complicated—when it comes to polygamy in Nauvoo. That Joseph Smith is driven by two simultaneous yet sometimes conflicting anxieties. On the one hand, he believed that this polygamous project was central to his reform mission, what he called the Abrahamic Project. And second, he believed that if word crept out about this project, everything was going to come collapsing down. And so he keeps moving to expand the practice even as he tries to keep it secret. And when he dies, that secret was falling apart. There are already lots of people knowing it's being written about in newspapers. We're getting firsthand accounts. We're getting people who were involved in polygamy breaking off. And so it was becoming much harder to uh, maintain, which is one of the great ironies of the practice because I argue in the book that one of the reasons for polygamy in Joseph Smith's mind and the mind of many who practice it was it was meant to bring order and stability to a chaotic and fallen world, when in reality, the practice of polygamy only brought even more chaos.
1: Yeah. So you talk about it as a project, right? And I like the language that you use because Joseph Smith was all about starting projects, right? We have the Egyptian project and we have the polygamy project. Can you talk about some of, uh, before his death, why don't you talk about some of the balls that he had in the air?
0: Yeah, Joseph Smith had a great knack of creating new councils and new projects and new organizations to be able to match whatever the developments of his program required. For instance, in the early part of Nauvoo, when the Quorum of the Twelve returns for their mission, Joseph Smith elevates the Quorum of the Twelve and makes them a much more powerful body in the city. As he's expanding his polygamous project, he starts introducing new people into it. And by the summer and fall of 1843, things had evolved so much said Joseph saw the need to create a new council, a new governing quorum, which he ended up calling the anointed quorum that included both men and women, and was rooted, at least in principle, on the acceptance of polygamy. But by March of 1844, that council had become problematic because several prominent members of the council had fallen away. Emma was once again fighting against polygamy, and Joseph saw the need to create a new council, which is when he He creates a Council of 50, which was not just a more explicitly political organization, but an all-male organization, which all men initiated, had to promise not to share their secrets, even to their wives. And so by the time Joseph Smith dies in June of 1844, he had created all this cascading steps of, of authority and power in the city that. Some replaced others, some overlapped with others. And so as a result, when he was gone, there was legitimate questions about who should rule and what councils were most authoritative and how did polygamy play all of this. And so it's a classic case of someone who's a visionary and a creator, but not a systematic thinker, kind of creating these elements that are supposed to bring more order, but as a result, only raise more questions.
1: So one of one of the things that I pause out on this podcast is that polygamy impacts almost everything in Mormonism from doctrine to theology to culture if it's not part of a traceable line of doctrine and theology then it's a reaction to polygamy right A lot of the programs we have now are reactions to the absence of polygamy or rooting it out. How much evidence in Nauvoo do you see of polygamy driving a lot of Joseph Smith's behavior, his doctrine, his theology,
0: and his choices? Yeah, it's a good question. It was actually one of the driving questions of my research project, because when I started looking at the literature on Nauvoo, I realized that there were two camps that rarely overlap. There was... All the scholar, great scholarship that's done on polygamy in Nauvoo. And then there's all the scholarship that looks at everything else, the politics of society, the doctrine, the temple, what have you. And what I wanted to see is how those two things intertwined, how polygamy was rooted in politics and how politics was rooted in polygamy. And I saw that overlap in a number of ways. Most prominently, I saw the same anxieties and ideas that were driving Joseph Smith's political activities, most notably eventually creating a theocracy, were the same ideas that were driving his polygamous proposals. Put simply, that the domestic democratic society of antebellum America had only led to anarchy and disorder and chaos and partisanship and marginalization, and oppression. And the only way to restore some sense of order was a patriarchal order of hierarchy. And that included both political leadership as well as domestic arrangements. And so I use as an example Eliza R. Snow, who was secretly sealed to Joseph Smith in the summer of 1842. And though she does not explicitly say so in her diary, she starts musing in her diary shortly after being secretly sealed to Joseph Smith, comparing the permanency of the priesthood covenant, the gospel that had been portrayed to her by Joseph Smith, to the instability and the chaos of the world around her. She likened American society to the rain, the thunderstorm that was pouring down on her home on the stay of the secret ceiling. And so to answer your question, Lindsay, I see even if it's not polygamy that's directly driving these other actions the same ideas that are driving polygamy are also the idea driving these other actions but then of course they they intersect in more concrete ways like in 1843 and 1844 when rumors of polygamy caused Joseph Smith to take more and more drastic steps i mean the destruction of the Nauvoo expositor was explicitly done to keep the secret of polygamy uh creeping out and And that's what leads to Joseph Smith eventually being arrested and killed. And so I don't think you can tell the story of Nauvoo without not just including polygamy, but making polygamy front and center to that story.
1: So one of the things I think that your book talks about that actually got me rethinking this was the idea of women's authority and how that shifts between Joseph's leadership And Brigham's, and you actually, I think, if I'm reading this correctly, you're making the argument that Joseph Smith and polygamy, his polygamy project, was an experiment with women's authority, not just in now in the temporal life, but in the eternal life. And then you know, Brigham Young sort of switched that bit. Can you talk about that? Can you talk about how you tie the idea of women's authority? Because you said earlier, and I want to dive into this as well you saw this as Joseph Smith trying to find order in his life. But of course, it's such a chaotic Mm. thing. So how did Joseph Smith argue, or I guess, try to implement giving women more authority than they had in the context of their time?
0: Yeah, it's a a crucial question, both to Nauvoo and uh, my book. What I quickly discovered in trying to trace out the narrative of, of gender authority in Nauvoo is that it's not a clear-cut, teleological, predetermined march toward more inclusion and more empowerment. But rather, it's more like a roller coaster with some moments when women are exercising more authority and others where it's kind of scaled back. In some ways, polygamy was a chance not just for women to enter into this patriarchal salvific system. But for them to hold a position of authority within the cosmos. DNC 132 speaks about deified beings in, in, uh, in both they, men and female terms. A lot of the women who enter polygamy talk about the power it provided them. And then, of course, with the example I mentioned earlier, when the anointed quorum was organized in the fall of 1843, women were included and that anointed quorum became the most powerful body in Nauvoo for about half a year. Fact that I think we sometimes overlook that The governing body in Nauvoo included both men and women. But then in March of 1844, when Emma Smith goes on another crusade and holds public meetings against polygamy, Joseph Smith dissolves the anointed quorum and he said, and he kind of denounces or leaves society, this body that had been wielding very strong power in Nauvoo, much more powerful than other uh, women's organizations in America at the time. And Joseph starts saying that the Relief Society was a mistake, that he didn't have any problems until the Relief Society started speaking out. And it seems like he came to regret empowering the Relief Society. And then after he dies, Brigham Young, takes it to a next level, does not allow any public meetings of women whatsoever, tells the, the wives of the leaders of the church that if I see any of you taking your men astray, I'm going to not allow you into these prayer circles and into the temple rituals. And that ends up shaping when the endowment gets introduced in the in the winter of eighteen forty five-46. And now we have a very much more explicitly patriarchal system that lacked the the gendered empowerment that Joseph Smith sometimes taught.
1: Yeah, I think that's such an interesting and almost critical shift that I haven't even paid attention to, that a lot of people haven't paid attention to. We all pay attention to it in the sense of this linear history, and this happened, which led to this, which led to this. But the idea that this was percolating, not just in Joseph Smith's psyche, but in the women that he introduced us to, I think is really fascinating. How does polygamy connect to the Council of 50?
0: Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that the Council of 50 was organized the very same week that Emma Smith holds her public meetings denouncing polygamy.
1: And really quick, Um, can you explain what the Council of 50 is to a lay audience?
0: Yeah, so the Council of 50, when Joseph Smith and the Mormons arrived in Nauvoo, they had hopes that they could save the democratic system. and So they went through a various number of methods, befriending politicians, block voting, reinterpreting legal precedents and what have you. But by the spring of 1844, though, they believed that the democratic system was failed beyond redemption and it was time for something else. So Joseph gathers his closest friends together and organizes a new council. This council, they called a number of different names. The name that was given through a revelation was the kingdom of God and his laws, and it goes on for several more lines. But they colloquially referred to it as either the kingdom or the council of 50. And in the words of those who participated, their goal, their mission was to establish a theocracy somewhere on the American frontier where God's voice would once and for all return order to society. Now, how this council, and by the way, this council does things like draft a new constitution to replace the American constitution. They organize Joseph's presidential campaign. This is the council that ends up organizing their migration west and choosing the Salt Lake Valley. Uh, This becomes the most dominant organization in the church. How it relates to polygamy are two ways. First, it was created directly... Uh, As a result of the opposition to polygamy, when Joseph Smith no longer felt he could trust the anointed quorum, and especially when he no longer could trust his wife, Emma Smith, due to her opposing polygamy, he creates the Council of 50, which is not just all men, but once again, all the men have to promise not to share their activities, even to their wives. One interesting way where the Council of 50 does not relate to polygamy is not everyone on the council are polygamists. So it seems like there is still an, a, a concentric circle within the Council of 50 of even more authoritative bodies, those who practice polygamy. And in fact, after Smith dies, Brigham Young and the others see that the reason why they have the authority and not the Council of 50 to govern the church is because they had access to the priesthood keys, most notably uh, poly- the polygamous project. And so the Council of 50 soon becomes the governing, a body in Nauvoo, led, of course, by Brigham Young and the Quorum of the Twelve, and they see it as their chance to make sure that Joseph's mission comes to fulfillment. And that includes, of course, the expansion of polygamy.
1: And you mentioned not everyone on the council was polygamous, but there were a few non-Mormons on the council, too, as well, right?
0: Yeah, when Joseph Smith was in charge, he said that there should always be non-Mormons on the council, that the kingdom is different than the church. And so there were three non-Mormons. But after Joseph Smith died, and Brigham Young took control of the council. He explicitly said there's no difference between the kingdom and the church, that they're one and the same. And one of the first things he did was kick off the three Gentiles so that he could have full control.
1: Let's talk about Brigham Young for a minute in Nauvoo. You actually paint him in a way that I appreciate, which is, and and people don't understand this, Brigham Young developed over time into what we understand and know when he became the colonizer of Utah. What was Brigham Young like in Nauvoo?
0: Brigham Young in Nauvoo had only recently risen to an authoritative position. He had previously been a member of the Quorum of the Twelve before Nauvoo, but he wasn't the president. He didn't become president of the Quorum of the Twelve until the Nauvoo period. And when he was part of the Quorum of the Twelve, they only had authority outside of church headquarters, so in the mission field. Then he spent his first, you know, year of the Nauvoo period in England, but because of the success he and other missionaries had, and because they were bringing Thousands of converts into Nauvoo, and it's important to remember that by the time the Saints leave Nauvoo, about a quarter of its inhabitants were born in England, and so you have a large number of the of the stream of converts that, in Joseph Smith's mind, was rooted to Brigham Young's success as a leader. So when Brigham Young returns from his British mission, he gets elevated, not just as president of the Quorum of the Twelve, but that the Quorum of the Twelve now has authority within the church headquarters as well. He takes a role in their financial affairs. The Quorum of the Twelve takes control over the private records. They're deeply involved in the temple uh, building. And then he's one of the first people, in fact, he's the first man other than Joseph Smith, to try and take a plural wife, although his first attempt does not turn out that well. And so by the time Joseph Smith dies, Brigham Young has really catapulted pretty high up. Now, those who have been longtime members of the church probably had a little difficulty seeing that because they were used to Brigham Young and the 12th not having a central role in the church headquarters. But a large number of Nahu by that point had been brought in through the Corbin the 12th's missionary work. So they had no problem seeing Joseph or seeing Brigham Young as a leadership figure. And after Joseph had died, Brigham Young was quick to take control. If Joseph was intimately concerned with bringing stability and order, Brigham Young shared that anxiety only on steroids. He thought that it was dissent and internal division that led to Joseph's death, and he was not going to allow that to happen to him. So his first public statements after taking control of the church made it clear that he was not going to brook any dissent. He would excommunicate those who challenged him. He would recall even apostles who seemed to be doing things that would chip away at his authority. So Brigham Young quickly learned to take one of the central elements of Joseph Smith's message that the prophet was supposed to keep control and take it in an even further degree to make sure that the church operated around his authority.
1: Yeah, and I appreciate that because I have argued in this podcast that I believe that the development and some of the harsh things that Brigham Young instituted later on were just a reaction to the anxiety that Brigham felt being second to Joseph Smith, right, to replacing that. And I think that you argue a good foundation for that. In fact, I forgot to mention this, but th- this book is the first book that's been written about Nauvoo since the Council of Fifty Minutes have been released. Is that true? Correct. OK, so can you argue then I, I'm interested in the political dynamic and and mostly Mormons focus on the Mormons versus the federal government. Right. But you you show the tension within Joseph Smith's contemporaries and, and the men that he is working with. So can we talk about that for a minute? Brigham Young's anxiety. Um, but what? who are all these other players and how are they impacting Nauvoo and Joseph Smith?
0: Yeah, as a number of scholars have shown over the years, um, Joseph Smith provided uh, overlapping and sometimes competing uh, ideas of leadership roles, that the First Presidency had lots of control, the Corps of the Twelve had lots of control, the Stake Presidency had lots of control, and eventually the Council of Fifty had lots of control. And the only thing that really tied all these different councils and structures together was Joseph Smith himself. So when Joseph died, there was a genuine question um, of who really should be in control, especially when you have lots of different groups who have different visions of how Mormonism should develop. This is especially difficult in Nauvoo, where a lot of these developments took place behind closed doors. So the average Mormon who lived in Nauvoo would have had no idea about the Council of Fifty or the temple rituals, let alone polygamy. And so you had different leaders of of the church who could capitalize on that. Sydney Rigdon, for instance, who had been a counselor in the first presidency, all the way back since the church's founding, fourteen years earlier. You have William Law, who was in the first presidency in Nauvoo and just had a very uh, outspoken disagreement with Smith. You had several members of the, of the Twelve who had prominent positions. You had people who had who were presiding bishops and and who also had big claims. William Marks was the stake president, and many believed that the president of the stake, of the center of the church, that was the most authoritative position. And what was crucial was not only did you have these different authoritative positions, but they were filled with people who had conflicting ideas of what the church should do. William Marks, who was the president of the Nauvoo stake, he did not agree with polygamy projects. He thought that was a corruption of the faith. And so he wanted to take it in one direction. Then, of course, you have Emma Smith, who is uh, doing her own work in Nauvoo, who she believed on for good reason, that Joseph Smith wanted it to be hereditary leadership and that his sons would eventually lead the church. And she didn't want Brigham Young leading the church in a direction that she felt only highlighted the worst parts of the Emma, Emma hated the polygamous project, and when Brigham took control and expanded the polygamous families, she saw that as the worst of the legacy, and she wanted to lead the church in different ways. So as a result, you have lots of different personalities, lots of different people working from different positions of authority that caused a, a major crisis, and that's why many people call this period the succession crisis.
1: One of the things that you point out in the book, though, is as Joseph Smith, he's, he's building these structures he's building these quorums he's building these councils he's also building a city and so it was a good reminder that all of this all this conflict all this tension sometimes when we study it and talk about it later as mormon historians we're talking about the theological systems he's building but we have to understand that mormons and in general and I think we could argue this now kingdom building is a very literal act it's a temporal act as well as a spiritual act so How did Joseph Smith and these men that you're talking about with all these conflicting ideas of what the church should do, how is that impacted by the idea that they're not just building a theological city of God, they're actually building a physical city. So they're constructing tabernacles and businesses and and things like that. How does that impact? How do those two work together in tandem?
0: It's a good question because they're doing all this while they're cash-strapped and they don't have any money and resources to do it. And I fear sometimes we get a faulty perspective of what Nauvoo, the physical city, must have looked like when we go to what Nauvoo looks like today because you go to Nauvoo today and you see all these beautiful brick homes that were either remained from the period or have been rebuilt as part of this Restoration Act in the 20th century. Uh, but in reality, a majority of saints who lived in Nauvoo lived in dirty, small wooden sheds and cabins. Um, most visitors to Nauvoo commented on how dirty and temporary the, the city appeared and, and how poverty seemed to be a, a major thing. I mean, these were a lot of people who settle in Nauvoo either came from Missouri destitute or are, are migrating from the UK and other places without much provisions to their name. Joseph and others tried to create an economy. They create boot shops and brick stores and and other things. But the reality was that there wasn't much money being infused in the city. And so there was a constant struggle um, that was never fully resolved.
1: How would you like readers to understand Nauvoo then in this context, with all this complicated stuff, if we were to look back on it and, I guess, change our ideas of what we think Nauvoo is, what would you say needs
0: to shift in our thinking? I would like people to see Nauvoo for the experiment it was, that they were truly trying to attempt something radical. And that their solutions were were often stretched. Uh, They did not always come up with the best answers to the, the problems. But I think a lot of us should be able to at least sympathize with the anxieties that were driving their struggles. They were worried that in a society driven by majoritarian control, their voices were not being heard and their interests were not being prioritized. And so they were desperate to find a way to gain a voice. In this broader community. Now, I don't think the answer to that problem, this problem of uh, of minority voices being overlooked, I don't think the solution to that is to create a theocratic kingdom. I know that's the great insight that listeners come to your polygamy to hear, but I don't think that's the solution. But I do think that that's a constant problem that I wish Latter-day Saints and those of other Mormon traditions could sympathize more with today. That What is it like to be a group that feels downtrodden, oppressed, overlooked, and how do we better look out for those voices? When Joe Smith runs for president, for instance— he runs on a campaign of strengthening the federal government, of saying that the federal government needs to be both willing and strong enough to intervene in local matters when the voices of minorities are being trampled under. And I, I wish that was a perspective that more modern Mormons had, and I think that's one of the crucial lessons from Nauvoo.
1: I think it's hard for people to accept an idea of a Joseph Smith sort of as this dreamer, this American reformer, because of some of the things that he did, right? Because of polygamy, that's such an issue. And again, I would say this is how polygamy still impacts our psyche. We can't allow Joseph Smith to be separated from that, right? Because on the one hand, he's doing all these grand experiments, but it was a complicated time for the women in his life. And you you talk about that. You talk a lot about... Emma Smith's reaction and how that played into the dynamics. What should we understand about Joseph Smith's polygamy in the context of all of this? Should we have more compassion? Should we have less compassion? Should we have a more holistic view?
0: I Yeah, I, I'm definitely not one to say we should have more compassion to the, the polygamous project in general, that this was something that needs to uh, be seen in a positive light. I, I, that's not something that, that I take away from Nabu story. But I do think that we can take away a couple things. One, I think we can accept the experimental nature of it, that they are not so wedded to traditional mores so much that they are not willing to try something new. I think sometimes we can become so used to what currently exists that we are unwilling to look for new solutions, even if some of our proposed new solutions uh, only lead to more problems. And second, I think one of the major lessons of polygamy in Nauvoo is that we need to look at not just a participation of women, but how women instigated change and how they drove the narrative Nauvoo. I set out, and I'll leave it to readers to decide whether I accomplished that, but I set out to Write a history of Nauvoo, including a polygamy, in which women are not just present, but they are central figures who are forcing new decisions, introducing new ideas, driving sh- change, shaping the practice. And I think uh, our histories of Nauvoo, Mormonism, and, and polygamy in particular, need to be much more focused on the actions that women did within those structures.
1: Yeah, and I actually, I think you did that well. I don't know anyone that would disagree with that. Again, I think that this shows up in the way that you contextualize women's authority and sort of the tension between that and the sacrifices that they were making. But the men saw themselves in a similar role, right? They saw themselves as giving sacrifices to build this kingdom of God. And Nauvoo can almost, in my opinion, tell me if this is correct, was an attempt to legitimize Mormonism, right? Because before it was chaotic, it was it was violent, it was more of a hippie commune experiment in so many ways. <laughs> Nauvoo is where they sort of try to, this isn't the right word, but correlate, legitimize, try to make themselves a bigger group. Right. I
0: think a few things are going on there. One is I think we get the distinctive Mormon ideas start to crystallize in Nauvoo, where before that you would just say it's kind of a variety of Protestantism in America, but in Nauvoo, a lot of the central doctrines come to the foreground. But second to your point, in Nauvoo, one of the primary drives was to be accepted by the broader nation. That's why when Joseph Smith receives a revelation that comes to be known as DNC 124, it includes not just instructions for their unique building the temple, but also the Nauvoo house, a a hotel that's going to be host dignitaries and visitors. And so there was a drive to be known and accepted, even if that was on the condition of we're going to hide these things that we know won't be known and accepted.
1: What are some of the central doctrines that you just mentioned that sort of crystallized in this period?
0: Yeah, um, and a lot of these are connected to the temple when Joe Smith uh, uh, starts preaching new temple doctrine. Now I'm the, summer of 1840, Joe Smith announces we're going to have a new temple on the bluff overlooking the city. But when he first does that, he speaks of it as if it's just going to be a repeat of what they did in Kirtland. And the ear- earliest architectural renderings of what the Nagu Temple was going to look like was basically another Kirtland temple. But over the next year, Joseph Smith starts preaching a number of new doctrines associated with the temple, which kind of transform it. Doctrines like the eternal nature of spirit, the eternal power of the priesthood, baptisms for the dead, and then eventually eternal unions and families being sealed to, or couples being sealed to one another forever. And the priesthood power having enough authority to make those unions last beyond the grave, and baptism for the dead being an example of how rituals fit into that. Now, of course, polygamy grows out of that as well. So I think that's one of the thorny issues that Mormons still have to deal with, with the history of Nauvoo, that polygamy is interwoven with these other doctrinal and theological ideas that are percolating from Joseph Smith starting in that 1840 and going all the way to his death.
1: I also think that the development and change of Joseph Smith's relationship to some of the key characters in his life changed in Nauvoo. Can you talk about that for a minute? Who was running around with him before Nauvoo and how does that change in this relatively short period of time?
0: Yeah, I think the most prominent example of that is Sidney Rigdon. Uh, Sidney Rigdon, before Nauvoo, was probably the most prominent figure of the faith, even before Joseph Smith. He was a counselor in the First Presidency. He was a formal spokesperson whenever there's a big Mormon gathering or conference. It was Rigdon giving the the sermons, not Joseph Smith. But by the time that they arrive in Nauvoo, Sidney Rigdon starts falling out of favor with Joseph Smith. They have some personality clashes. Um, They have some problems over polygamy, including when Joseph Smith proposes a plural marriage between himself and Sidney Rigdon's daughter, Nancy. They have some theological disagreements where Sidney Rigdon is much more in tune with the more Protestant variety of Mormonism before Nauvoo. And so as Nauvoo progresses, Sidney Rigdon is more and more marginalized to the point of where when he makes a plea to lead the church after Joseph's death, there weren't many people willing to follow him. So, I mean, that was a huge rise and fall. Um, other figures that kind of are important, you have some of the early uh, bishops of the church, Edward Partridge, Newell K. Whitney. They remain prominent members of the church, but unlike Sidney Rigdon, they evolve and accept Joseph Smith's new doctrines, and they accept plural wives. And in Newell K. Whitney's case, he has a daughter sealed to Joseph So you have people who are longtime members who evolve. And then I talked about Brigham Young earlier. And so I think you have multiple different examples of how people who were in the leadership of the church before Nauvoo, unable to change as Joe Smith changes in Nauvoo and others who are willing to continue along for the ride.
1: I want to talk about that change with Emma Smith. But first, someone who I don't think is talked enough about in this period is John Taylor, because John Taylor goes on to be a huge essential figure in Mormon polygamy and Mormonism in general. But we don't often hear about him, so can you talk about John Taylor and what he's up to in this time? Of course, he's there during the assassination of Joseph Smith, but what role does he play?
0: He he definitely takes a huge role in Nauvoo. I'm glad you brought him up. He not only becomes an apostle right before Nauvoo, but then serves with the successful mission to Great Britain. But when he returns, he becomes the newspaper editor of, of both newspapers produced in Nauvoo. And so he kind of becomes the official voice of the church for a national body. And one of the things that really stand out to me about John Taylor is he is one who is not willing to soften his message, especially in like the council Fifty 15 minutes. John Taylor is the one who has a fire under his seat and is willing to speak hellfire and brimstone. And he's the one that even comes up with metaphors for beating people up. Like when he says that if a non-Mormon visits our city and we don't trust him, we should introduce him to Aunt May or Aunt Mary, I forget the name, but it was basically a term for saying we should beat him up. Or another term that he uses, we need to give him a good old laying on of hands. Um, And so you get uh, John Taylor, who is very willing to not just accept, but promulgate the most radical implications of Mormonism's doctrine and culture, which really sets the groundwork for, I mean, when he's the president in the 1880s, he's had decades of history of saying, you know, kingdom of God or nothing. So I, I think you see that personality start to really come to the foreground during Nauvoo.
1: Yeah, I, I love that you said that because a kingdom of God or nothing is something that shows up on some of the headstones in Short Creek. I have Mormon tattoos, and <laughs> I'm considering getting that as one of my tattoos. So uh,
0: fun. Uh, is, is, is it going to be in the desert alphabet, though?
1: No, we were we were joking that we should get the initials Kingdom of God or nothing and like put them on my knuckles, you know, like in prison tattoo. I just think it's so hardcore, and it just encapsulates sort of John Taylor's whole persona. I know we're getting on, and you have to go, but I, now I'm going to talk to you about the controversial question: the daughters of Zion, the whistling and whittling elders. Can we talk about the Danites <laughs> for a minute? We just did a podcast for Sunstone: Extra Legal Justice. John Dinger and I, a six-part miniseries called Desert Dramas that you can look it up. And when I was researching for that, I found, I think it, I think is a Ballard. Elder Ballard is a modern leader in the LDS Church, and he was talking about the Danites and the whistling, whittling elders in a positive way. Like, look at what these young boys were protecting their community. Can you talk about their
0: role and what we know about them in Nauvoo? Yeah, so the whittling and whistling elders came about in the spring and summer of 1845. And what made them necessary was in January of that year, the Illinois State Legislature revoked the Nauvoo Charter, making Nauvoo disincorporated, which meant that, among other things, they could not have a police body protecting them anymore. So they saw themselves as unprotected and just laying prone for non-Mormons to come in and, and harass them. So in the Council of 50 minutes, and this is one of the things that the Council of 50 organized in 1850, was we're going to have a group of men, not young boys, a group of men follow around anyone who visits the city who we do not know and we do not trust. And they will be whistling and whittling away with their, you know, buoy knives to make sure that the visitors get the message. John Taylor was also pretty outspoken in the, in the newspaper. Uh, saying that these boys are just protecting our rights. They based it on the principle in American culture that the first right of any American is to protect their lives. And so the Whistling Brigade, it was not young boys, it was grown men, and it was meant to be the threat of violence. And then eventually, rumors and words of the group became so widespread that the church had to abandon it. And I will say, uh, for those who are interested in the topic, Jeffrey Mahas, who is a editor with the Joseph Papers Project, wrote a wonderful article on the brigade that was published in the Journal of Mormon History a couple of years ago.
1: Fantastic. Thank you for that. And before I leave you, then let's just ask you this. What is one thing that surprised you about this study? Like I said, when you wrote about this, I was like, I wonder what he could bring to the table. I think one of the greatest impacts of this book is how you talk about the political legacy of Mormonism and how it interacts with Mormon theology, but also the doctrine of Americanism. But what did you learn? What surprised you in writing this?
0: Yeah, so two things. The first, really quick, just connected to what you just said: how much of the American story is embedded in Nauvoo, and that Nauvoo should not just be seen as a Mormon tale, but an American tale, because a lot of the paradoxes, anxieties, and stories and tensions of early America are found in Nauvoo. And second, since this is the the polygamy podcast, I, I should bring up something that struck me about polygamy, and that's how much the polygamist doctrine and practice evolved in just the last three years of Joseph Smith's life. I went into the project kind of assuming that polygamy, you know, appeared in early Nauvoo and then just kind of stayed the same. It just expanded. But as I tried to trace out in the book, I really think it goes through several different important phases, evolving both in response to new doctrines and new ideas. For instance, I think when Joseph Smith produces the last few pastors with Abraham, that changes the practice. But also when he's pitching the idea to new people and new circumstances, for instance, I have a bit on what I think ends up converting Hiram Smith to polygamy. The the way the practice and doctrine evolved really surprised me.
1: Yeah, I think that that's essential, actually, to understanding. And it actually plays into, we talked earlier at the beginning of this podcast about polygamy deniers. And I think That that is a natural outcropping of people who don't understand this shift from Joseph Smith to Brigham Young and how it plays in to the succession crisis. They're all intertwined. And as a result, polygamy and how it's practiced and how it develops is a consequence of all of those tensions, right? Is that fair to say?
0: I, I think that's exactly right.
1: So before I leave, one last question. What is it that you want readers to get overall from this book?
0: I hope readers take from this book just how riveting a story Nabu was, and that I hope there are elements of the story that might surprise people who otherwise might think they know everything about Nabu. And second, I hope they can recognize not just how much the church changes in Nauvoo, but how it's changing in response to its surrounding society and culture, which I hope gives us a perspective of how Mormonism can continue to change and shift depending on the circumstances and whoever is currently moving the movement.
1: Fantastic. Well, I think it is probably one of, if not the essential reading for Nauvoo, so Congratulations on that. That's fantastic.
0: That, that means a lot coming from one of the experts.
1: Well, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in Nauvoo, but you are now. And I'd probably like to bring you on later on so we can talk. I, I really want to dive into this issue of women's authority. I think that's really interesting. The tension between Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and how they saw women and women's roles in the church and also the men around them. So hopefully I can have you back on. I'll be ready. How can people find the book? How can they contact you? Do you want people to contact you or do you want people to leave you alone? About
0: it? <laughs> I'm always happy to receive messages, although I will note that it's hard for me to keep up with all of them. But the book, the Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of Religious Empire and the American Frontier, can be bought at any uh, bookstore. Please support your local bookstores. It's also available as an audiobook, an ebook, so get it wherever you support your local institutions.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you again, Ben Park. You have been a gift to Mormon Studies. You've been in the community for about as long as I have. <laughs> so I would say Ben Park and I trained up together in this Mormon Studies community. So I'm really proud to see this incredible history. So thank you, Ben.
0: It's an honor to be honored
1: The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.